This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for Episode 57 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest today is Joe Weiss. He's the managing partner of Applied Control Solutions, a firm that provides consulting services to optimize and secure industrial control systems. He's been in the industry for over 40 years and has earned a reputation as an outspoken and sometimes contrarian advocate for improved ICS security. He's been a featured speaker at dozens of conferences, has written countless books and articles, and has testified before Congress multiple times. Our conversation centers on what he sees as critical shortcomings in the current approach to securing critical infrastructure, including the electrical grid, manufacturing, railways, and water supplies. Are IT and OT professionals simply talking past each other, or is there more to it than that? Joe Weiss has strong opinions on that and many other topics, opinions formed from a long, fruitful career fighting to keep those systems safe. Stay with us. I'm a instrumentation and control system engineer, uh, which I've been doing my whole career. I was at the Electric Power Research Institute for about 15 years. And the first five years, I ran the nuclear plant instrumentation and diagnostics programs. And then the next five years, I ran the fossil plant instrumentation and controls programs. And I was the institute lead on advanced uh, sensors, controls, and communications. And then because I was getting all kinds of calls from colleagues. That resulted in starting the uh, Y2K Embedded Systems Program. And when that was done, that was really why we started the Control System Cyber Program. We were under the impression that because there was such phenomenal information sharing with Y2K, that there would be the same level of information sharing on cyber. I can only speak for myself. I had no idea that, that it was a problem. It's just we had such great information sharing, we didn't want it to go to waste. But the thing that really got me and sent me along the path that I'm in was really two things. One was every time I would go to an industry cybersecurity meeting or conference, it was really IT-focused, and every time I would bring up specific control system issues, I would be told it was the first time anybody ever brought it up. And the other thing was, because I have had and have contacts all over the world, primarily you know, in the control system space, I was getting people providing me basically case histories. They've had these problems. Has anybody else seen the same thing? And that was the genesis of where my database of actual control system cyber incidents come from, which, by the way, is now well over a thousand. So you've really experienced in real time over the course of your career this transition of, of having these systems, uh, for lack of a better term, hosed up to the Internet. Yeah. In fact, you could take it a step further to watch them simply get connected and go from being, if you will, 
dumb electromechanical devices to smart communication devices. Can you speak to this tension I think there is that's ongoing? And I'm not saying it's an unhealthy tension, but a tension that exists between the IT folks and the OT folks. Well, and I'll add another couple of tensions, if you will. Okay. One is between the safety and security people. Mm. There's another tension between the forensics and the ICS world. I mean, what you've got is a community, if you will, the ICS community. And I hate to use the word ICS because this is also building controls and defense and everything else. The operators and maintainers of physical infrastructures and essentially the people that provide networks. And that's really different. How so? Well, in the sense that our systems, you know, whether it be in, you know, an industrial, commercial, you name it, they were designed years ago to run, you know, they, they, you could call them a network, but they were basically point to point. They would work whether the operator could ever see anything or not. The whole point about Windows and the interconnectivity really wasn't an issue with the Internet. It was the issue with the microprocessor, because the Internet or no Internet, if all you had was dumb zeros and ones, nobody would care. What made everything change was the microprocessor that actually gave you information. And that's what everybody wanted. And so what happened was, you know, there was a decision made early on that, gee, let's go to a standard, you know, interface because it wasn't just the plant floor, I hate to use that term, that was interested in this, but it was others too. And that's where kind of the Windows HMI came in. It's just we got used to and now need a view of the process. You'd sure like to know what train is on what track. The train will continue to run whether you know it or not, but it may not be safe if, you don't, if you're the dispatcher and you don't know the train's on the wrong track. But help me understand, Joe, there's a big difference to you to uh, continue along uh, the lines of what you're describing here, to use that metaphor. There's a big difference between being able to view what train is running on which track and being able to switch the tracks to put a train on a different track. Correct. Um, So can you can you suss that out for us? So when it comes to ICS, that difference between being able to view things and being able to control things. Well, there's another big issue, too. And that's, if you will, timing. We're looking at things, you know, when you start looking at sensors and controllers, these are things that operate in real time, you know, you know, as much as in microseconds to milliseconds. The operator is totally out of the loop. The operator doesn't get involved until you're talking about things that can happen really in minutes. Our concern is at two layers. One is what happens instantaneously. Because if you think about, you know, an automated, whether it's a rail system or a power plant or whatever, you're, you're monitoring, say, the position of a train or uh, the temperature of a process. You're monitoring that in real time. And the control systems are smart enough that 
they're making decisions, you know, basically in, in milliseconds or, or even faster, that if they see, for example, the temperature too high or too low, they're going to automatically change the process to bring that temperature back to where it belongs. They're not necessarily going to wait for human input to make that oh, they, decision. Oh, they don't. It's, it's, not, it's not practical. They're, they're not necessarily. No, it's not safe. I see. And it's also not reliable. I mean, the electric grid operates again in the microsecond to millisecond range. You know, you're not waiting at all for an operator to make a safety decision. That's done automatically. And it's done, like I say, in microseconds to milliseconds. So in what ways do the adversaries take advantage of that? Well, if they can, for example, this is, I think you've heard me talk about or seen this whole issue about level zero, level one. Mm. In the Purdue reference model, that's the sensors, actuators, and drives. And and let me, again, give you a, a kind of a funny analogy. If you're a doctor and you can't trust your temperature or blood pressure readings, how do you make a diagnosis? Yet, when it comes to security, unbelievably rare exceptions. Everybody is working on the diagnosis end and simply assuming that the temperature and blood pressure readings must be okay. What's happening, here's the big issue, and I'll explain the cultural reason behind it. None of our vendors, nobody to this day makes secure, authenticated process sensors, actuators, or tribes. And the reason for that was cybersecurity is essentially being led by IT, even in the ICS world, regardless of what people say. For IT, security is the network. Sensors, actuators, and drives are considered to be engineering systems. So to this day, there is no requirements at all for what constitutes a secure sensor, actuator, or drive. So the issue is, if you go in and, and you can, this is absolutely possible to do, if you manipulate the sensor, so the sensor tells you you're at 80 degrees when you're really at 100 degrees, the controller is going to change in real time, you know, the movement of valves and the movement of dampers or whatever, you know, all of this mechanical equipment or turn the motor speed up or turn the motor speed down, but it's going to do all of these real physical things to be able to bring the process back to where you want it to be. This is all happening instantaneously. The operator is made aware of this, but by the time he's made aware of it, it's many, many, many seconds to minutes. So if you compromise, tell a motor at 80 80 degrees when you should be 100 degrees, you're going to have the system try to bring it up and it could cause catastrophic failures. This is what we're worried about. This isn't somebody sitting at a console fiddling with things. These are things that are happening before the operator can do anything. And what's the odds of these sorts of things happening? I mean, are we seeing these sorts of catastrophic failures in the real world? Are are people successful? Oh, God, there's been many. But the point being is this. This is, remember I told you, there's a, a tension between forensics Right. And, and 
ICS. The ICS world has a lot of very, very good forensics. We can tell you pressure level, flow, temperature, motor speed, you name it. What we cannot tell you is, in a sense, who has changed any of those and whether they were being done maliciously or unintentionally. So what's happening is we don't have very good cyber forensics for ICS. And what's more, often when something big happens, the only difference was motivation. Did whoever do it do it because it was oops, it's then unintentional? Or did they do it because they were upset or, you know, had an ulterior motive, which then makes it malicious? Hmm. There's no forensics to tell you the difference. But in terms of the people who are, are running these systems day to day, in your opinion, what is the uh, appropriate place for threat intelligence? There's a big need. And, and by the way, let me rephrase another thing. It's definition. Threat intelligence, okay? And just start, start with the word threat. Mm-hmm. In your parlance or in certain, you know, in, in the quote-unquote threat intelligence world, it's all about malicious or malevolent actors. In my world, a threat is something that could upset the system. In other words, turn the lights on, have a train crash, have a pipe break. You know, a threat could be a totally non-malicious event. A janitor tipping over a bucket of water on, on a console could be is, is as much a threat as a malicious actor. Absolutely. If it, if, if it shorts out the, the console and you no longer have the ability, you know, to, you know, type anything in, and, mean, but, and meanwhile, that's what you're dependent on, then that's a heck of a threat, isn't it? You know, a cup mm. of coffee. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. If you want to cause specific damage and you do not want to be found, no attribution being a big deal, then, yeah, you probably need to be a nation state or have nation state funding and capability behind you. But if you don't care about attribution and you don't care about what you break just as long as you break something... You don't need to be a nation state. So, but in terms of the the folks who are, again, running these operations day to day, and Mm -hmm. uh, the ability for them to receive a stream of threat intelligence, you know, and and I think it's important to... What would they do with it? Well, but that's what I'm asking you. Uh, There's certainly, um, there must be information that if if you know someone is targeting you, uh, you can respond to that information, right? No. And I'm using no right away for a reason, okay? If I'm operating a power grid, my concern is operating that power grid in a safe, economic, and reliable manner. Sure. The fact that somebody tells me I'm being targeted, I'm going to go tell the security people, go do something about it. I'm not going to turn the lights off because somebody tells me... You know, that I'm being targeted. That isn't going to happen or shouldn't. I mean, here's the worst part. In a sense, it did with WannaCry, you know, because you had a number of facilities shut down in fear of what WannaCry was going to do. 
They didn't shut down because the systems were being, you know, hacked or compromised. They shut down because they were scared they could have been. And this is part of where the lack of forensics comes in. Because everything, and I mean this for a fact, all of the network monitoring companies, including for ICS, every one of them starts with the Ethernet packet, Hmm. which means they do not, have a view of the actual process. They make an assumption that they do, but they don't. This gets back to, if I compromise the sensor before it goes through the serial to ethernet converter, the gateway, the network monitoring will never find it. And I use the word never, because it's gonna take that packet and assume it's gold. And all of the network monitoring is gonna be about making sure that that packet stays pristine, but it has no way of knowing zero whether that actual underlying data that converted into this Ethernet packet is actually good or not. None of them have that capability. So just, I mean, to help me understand here, because I think to, to play devil's advocate, I, I could say to you, well, Joe, the lights are on, the trains are running, the plants are making power, and uh, the world keeps sure. on spinning. Um, yes. So is this... Until it doesn't. Well, that, that, that's where I'm going with this. So is this, a, is this people whistling past the graveyard or, you know, hoping that ca- catastrophe won't happen? Let me put it this way. There's already been a thousand deaths to date from control system cyber incident. So when you go whistling by the graveyard, you can actually wave. And I, I'm, I'm sorry for saying it that way. But, yeah, we've had more than a 1,000 deaths to date. Now, you know, you've had all of these discussions about a cyber Pearl Harbor. Will we have a cyber Pearl Harbor? Here's the point. Will we know if it's cyber or not? And would the government be, be willing to acknowledge it was cyber or not? That's a totally separate question, and the answer there is probably not. You can't hide when a pipe breaks or a train crashes Hmm. or the lights go out, but you may not know that it was cyber that caused it. That's the issue. When when you talk to the folks who are on the shop floor, who are responsible for these devices, um, what sort of things do you hear from them? They think, and here's the real issue, they keep being told about cybersecurity, but their function in life is not to prevent cyber events. Their function in life is to make electricity, you know, and make them deliver electricity or to, you know, have uh, natural gas or gasoline flow through a pipeline or to make plastics or to do something that's their job their job has zero to do with security so the only reason security becomes an issue to them is if somebody can tell them and show them where security has actually impacted their job there is this complete total lack of connection if you will between vulnerability and impact you can tell me till the cows come home that there are all of these cyber vulnerabilities. Until you can point out and say, how does this affect the safety of my plant or the ability to produce widgets, 
you know, as designed, da-da-da-da-da. I don't care what you say. How do we bridge that gap? How do we ease this, this tension? Is what I've been, and, well, first of all, I've, I've been reasonably unsuccessful in a sense <laughs> for, for 18 years. We've gotten to the point, and again, people have to understand, you know, because you're sitting in a security world, you think everything is good in the sense that people are taking this seriously. The people that are taking this seriously are the security people. The people not yet taking this seriously are the people who actually operate and are worried about safety and reliability of these systems. For the organization um, in ICS who is trying to figure out what part threat intelligence should play in their uh, defensive posture, um, what's your advice there? How should they approach it? My feeling is, again, you got to rethink what the word threat intelligence means. Because threat intelligence is really all about cyber intelligence, you know, cyber threat intelligence. Mm -hmm. To anybody operating a system, that's just not that important to them. It's really important to the IT security organization. If you extend the term on what the words threat intelligence means, to incorporate threats to the system regardless of where from, then that starts becoming a very big deal. You know, when I was working on predictive maintenance of equipment, you know, 20 some odd years ago, that was of critical interest to the operators when you were talking about something like a nuclear plant or, or for example, a ship going out to sea for nine months, you want to know that your critical equipment is going to be able to operate, you know, for that nine months on a ship's, you know, voyage or, you know, the uh, 12 to 24 to 36-month fuel cycle of a nuclear plant. That's really, really important. The intelligence that's telling you the state of your equipment is absolutely critical to operations and maintenance. Somebody telling them that Iran or Korea, you know, North Korea or China is, you know, or ISIS is looking to hack them is of marginal value to anybody who's directly operating a facility. So what is the, what what is your message then to the folks on the cyber side? Are, are, is everyone just talking past each other? Yes. When you kept talking about whistling by the graveyard... That's where we are. People keep talking about vulnerabilities, but they're not tying it back to what does this really mean. Unless you're looking at and understand what all of this means to the actual equipment, you're not making a lot of progress. And you're sure not going to have the operations people all of a sudden want to sit sit up and take notice. When I started all of this back in 2000, it took till maybe around 2014 or 15 to get people to care about monitoring control system networks. And they're now doing it. You've got a whole bunch of companies who are doing a terrific job of monitoring control system networks. IT is not, or the security world, is not the right ones, period, to be addressing sensors, actuators, and drives. They need to be part of the ride, but they cannot lead it.
There are an awful lot of very, very, very smart people that are involved in this overall area, whether it's on the security area or the operations area. Our thanks to Joe Weiss for joining us. If you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll take the time to rate it and leave a review on iTunes. It really does help people find the show. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.